Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. How many of you went to a Christian school? Go ahead and raise your hand. Went to a Christian school? Okay, so you know what it's like to, if they have a need, if you wanted to play sports, if you wanted to play something, you had to play, right? And so when I went to, growing up, our Christian school was small. It wasn't very big at all. And so everybody had to play in sports. And so Garrett, you would not appreciate this because you went to a larger public school. You got to choose which sports you wanted to play. And uh, Christian school, you didn't have that opportunity. You had to play. And they weren't going to have a team if you didn't. And so... I had basketball practice after school, and I was okay at basketball. That was probably my most favorite sport, and I was, I mean, I was okay at it. I was a starter at this small Christian school, which didn't mean a lot. And so I remember particularly, I mean, I was in, um, I was in 11th grade, and I was starving because I hadn't eaten since noon time, right? So everybody's hungry. You're in practice, and you're running around. And the way that our church's property was set up, uh, the whole entire parking lot was probably, I don't know, if you were to run around it, I think it was like four times that's a mile. And so we went outside after practice, after running suicides and doing all those things. I was starving. I remember going outside, and they're like, you need to run around eight times from the whole entire parking lot. This is roughly a mile and a half, two miles, something like that. And so I'm running around, and I'm so hungry, but for some odd reason, I knew what we were going to have for dinner that evening. And uh, I guess my mom told us that beforehand, and so uh, I, it was one of my favorite meals, and I'm going to tell you what it is, and you're going you're gonna to judge me. But it is what it is. It's, it was baked chicken, noodles, just regular noodles without anything, and then um, like peas. Okay, that's what we were going to have for dinner that night. Really bland. Now that I'm married, it, my palate has gotten a lot better because Eileen likes to add some spices and such. And so as I was running around, that's all I could think about. It was, was going home and going and eating chicken and, and noodles and, and drinking this purple, like, drink stuff that they had in the refrigerator. That's all I wanted. And so I was craving it. I was thirsting for it. And so eventually practice is over. I go home and I go into the refrigerator and I pour, pour out that cold purple drink and I drank it. I think it was like grape juice or something. And it quenched my thirst. It did a pretty good job. But I was hungering for something. And so let's change the perspective. Let's say that I went home after hungering and craving for that sustenance, and I pulled out of the refrigerator this bottle of Dr. Pepper. I take my glass out, and I pour the best soda that's ever been made, and that's Dr. My wife would say Mountain Dew, but for me, it's Dr. Pepper. I pour that Dr. Pepper into that glass, and I drink it. You're going to be satisfied for just a moment, right? When you drink that soda, you're going to be satisfied for just a moment. That Thirst craving will be satisfied, but just a few moments later, because it's soda, you're going to be hungry, or you're going to be thirsty. As a matter of fact, you'll probably be more thirsty than you were beforehand, because I guess caffeine, somehow that works. I don't really know all the science behind it, but um, caffeine, I think, makes you more thirsty. And so what I would do in that particular situation is I would quench my hunger or quench my thirst with something that I believe was satisfactory. It would satisfy me for just a moment, but the result would end up making me more thirsty than I was beforehand. What we're going to look at tonight in their narrative through Jeremiah is this group of people that were looking to satisfy their cravings to be awed, so to speak, their cravings for glory and something that would not satisfy. And therefore, they had themselves in a pretty big, bad situation. So take your Bibles as we continue through our journey, and we're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. That's where we find ourselves tonight. Jeremiah chapter 8, just as a way of review, 
as you know, Jeremiah being this great prophet was specifically addressing the people of Judah. Judah being in the southern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom as a whole. It's the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel is referred to as Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel were already in a bad predicament. They already were divorced by God. They were underneath captivity from the Assyrians and they had their, basically their ship was sailed, so to speak. Judah wasn't in that situation yet, but they were heading that way. Judah, we understand, not being completely as bad as what Israel was, not as far gone because they had a good king, Josiah, which was two kings prior to what they were facing now. Josiah was a good king. He was a young king, started off at the age of eight, and as he continued to get older, he dedicated himself to the Lord. And uh, he said, this kingdom is yours, God. I'll do with it what you please. And so he brought the people back away from idol worship, back to the true God, but as his son came to reign, his son reversed that and went back to idol worship. And then his son, Josiah's grandson, who was the current king at this particular time, led them even further down the path of idolatry. And so we, as we understand, the people of Judah were far gone. I mean, they were, I mean, their ship was pretty much sailed. There was no turning back for them. They were not under captivity yet, but they were heading that way. And so God raises up Jeremiah, as we see in Jeremiah chapter 1, God specifically chose Jeremiah from his mother's womb to be this great prophet. And God tells Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was obviously nervous because he was such a young man, he was afraid nobody was going to listen to him. God said, don't you worry, I will give you the words to say, you're just going to simply be my mouthpiece. And so he preaches to him, he's proclaiming, as we come off the tail end from last week in Jeremiah chapter 7, all the way into the beginning part of verse 8, or chapter 8, Till verse 3, you have what is known as the temple sermon. That's the first one that is recorded in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah stood outside of the temple gates, and he caught all those, uh, uh, those Jews, those Israelites that were coming out of the temple and going into the temple to pay their dues to God, to worship God. See, they were underneath this belief system that because the temple was there, that more or less they were in the presence or in the midst of God. And we understand that the temple was really the intersection between heaven and earth. If you were to go into the temple, it's where the presence of the Lord was. You have the Holy of Holies. But people would go in there to the temple and they would worship God. But it was all hypocritical worship. They were going in, they were checking in, they were getting their, what we say, Sunday fix, so to speak. And then they were leaving and they were living their life the, the way they wanted to live it. And so God commissions Jeremiah to preach this message known as the temple sermon to address the hypocrisy that was going on in the hearts of the people. You know, they were all about, right, they, they were physically circumcised. Their physical circumcision showed them to the pagan nations that they were God's chosen people. It was like baptism now being the outward symbol that we are now God's people. So they were from the outside evidence that they were God's people, but their heart, so to speak, was not circumcised. Their hearts were not changed. And so as we go into Jeremiah chapter 8, coming off the tail end of this temple sermon, God knew that the sermon had landed on deaf ears. God knows that the preaching to the people would do no good. Remember what he says to Jeremiah back in verses 16 through 20, as we looked at last week. He says to Jeremiah, listen, it is worthless for you to pray for the people because they're not going to change, and my decision has already been made. See, God had been pursuing them over and over and over again until the point where God just said, you know what, fine, do what you want to do. We see that in Romans chapter 1. People continue to reject God. They continue to resist God, and God eventually turns them over to a reprobate mind. 
So what happens here is we transition to these next section of verses. What we see here is the specific deception of the people and the description of the impending punishment that results in the hardness of their heart. And so our main focus this evening is just going to be on two verses. But there's a lot of buildup that occurs until we get to that particular point. And so we're going to give you an overview of that until we get to our main uh, section here. So the first section occurs in chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, down to verse 17. I'm not going to read all of the verses here for the sake of time, but I want to give you an overview, really a manageable chunk, so that we can digest what is going on here. And the first section is really addressing the dangers of the false teaching in which they bought into. Maybe if you remember a few weeks ago, what was happening with the people is that all these false prophets that were supposed to be like Jeremiah were preaching something that was not true. They were preaching, basically accepting their sin, and so all the people were listening to them. I mean, the same thing happens today, right? People that are not spiritually sensitive go to churches in which the pastor preaches things that make them feel good in their own sinful life. And so Jeremiah was literally the only good prophet that was living at this particular time in this particular region. He was the only one. But the people were listening to the false teachers, and as a result, there was consequences they had to pay. And so in verses 4 through 7 specifically, Jeremiah is speaking about this natural instinct of one who gets up after they've fallen. If you were to look at verse 4, he starts off and says, Moreover, shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? The Hebrew word there, the Hebrew phrase there in verse 4 can be rendered, If one turns, then does not one return. Jeremiah starts off, this section really by playing on logic. He recognizes the fact that the Israelites have severely fallen spiritually, and he wonders why they aren't getting up. He says, shall you fail and not arise? Shall you turn away and not return? Why won't you get up? He then recounts the continual backsliding of the people. He goes on to say in verses 5 through 6, he says, why then is the people of Jerusalem Slidden back by a perpetual backsliding, they hold fast to see, they refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into battle. Jeremiah is perplexed as to why the people aren't listening to him. He questions their ability to think logically. Jeremiah knows that the people know the consequences of turning their backs on God. Think about it. They've seen all the way back from the Exodus, the history of their own people, what happens when they turn their back on God. They can look at their brothers in the northern kingdom and see what happens when they turn their backs on God. They're in captivity currently. But the people just will not listen. They had the northern kingdom as a living example of what happens to a nation that rejects God, but they wanted nothing to do with it. So they go on, Jeremiah continues on in verse 7, and he uses the example of the stork. He says, Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the timing of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. What he's saying there is that the animals know the migration system. They know when it's their turn to go where they need to go, flying south for the winter. The turtles know, if you guys ever watched the sea turtles, and I'm sure those of you that love to watch animals, you've seen the documentaries, right? The sea turtles know when they're about to deliver their eggs, and so they fly to wherever, not fly, they swim to wherever they're going, and they crawl ashore and they lay the eggs. They know that's in their instincts. They're animals. God placed that there. And Jeremiah says, listen, you people, you are turning your backs from God. 
You have the ability to think logically. You've seen the examples here, but you're not doing it. And so he's perplexed as to why they won't listen. And then he continues on in verses 8 through 13. And in these verses, Jeremiah refers to the fact that the people trusted in the false assurance that just because they had the law, they were good with God. Look down at verse 8. He says, how do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. What the Jews believed is that not only because they had the temple here that they were good because, you know, God was in the midst of them. They can continue to live because the temple's still there. The Jews believed that because they were given the law, and we understand that the law of God came through the Jews, that they were good. They had a leg up in all the other nations. And that is true. The Jews did. They had, they had a better position, so to speak, versus the Gentiles. But they believed and they accepted the fact that because they were given the law, that they were good with God. If you remember last year, and I don't expect you necessarily to remember, but if you were to flip over to Romans, in Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 29 specifically, the apostle Paul questions the Jews of the very same thing. We see in that particular chapter, he's writing again to the church of Rome, the Jews that were in the church, they thought that they were better to the, than the Gentiles because of the mere fact that they were given the law. Salvation came through the Jews, through Jesus Christ being a Jew. And so they believed that they were all good with God by the mere fact that God chose to use them and not the other people. And so what the apostle Paul does in Romans chapter 2 is he writes on their hypocritical living, saying that the law of God was delivered to the Jews, therefore they could live however they wanted because they were okay with God. Going back to Jeremiah, not only did the people of Judah fool themselves into thinking that because they had the law, they were good with God, they listened to the teachers of the false prophets, the teachings of the false prophets. Look at the tail end of verse 8. It says the phrase there, the pen of the scribes is in vain. What Jeremiah is doing here is he's accusing the scribes, in other words, those that were official transmitters of God's written word, of passing on a corrupted interpretation of the message. We've read this verse a few weeks ago. Look at verse 9. He says, The men, the wise men, are ashamed. They are dismayed and they are taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. The wise men, or these prophets, we're not recognizing that the only true wisdom that is out there comes from God. So instead, they failed to preach the truth. They failed to preach against sin. They failed to preach the entire message. And Jeremiah, in essence, says in verse 11, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah is preaching the impending judgment that is coming. But all the rest of the false prophets... They said, no, no, it's all good. You don't need to worry about anything. This kind of thing happens today, right? The preachers are busy preaching. I don't have anybody in particular in mind, but it's, there's some preachers out there, they're busy preaching on trying to grow a church through numbers, or they're trying to make people feel good about their sin, and they accept everyone, and you know, they use language like, we don't discriminate. And, and I understand what they're saying, but sometimes in efforts to not discriminate, they fail to preach against sin, when in reality, that's the most unloving thing that you can do. And so the people here were saying, or Jeremiah was saying, that these false prophets, they're giving false hope. They're giving false comfort and saying that there's peace, and there's peace coming, when in reality, that could be further thing from the truth. 
And he continues on here. As a result of their false teaching, Jeremiah lays out some consequences. He says back in verse 10, Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least even unto the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. Jeremiah continues, if you drop down to verses 12 and 13, and he says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall in the time of their visitation. Shall they be cast down, saith the Lord? I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the thing that I have given them shall pass away from them. What he's referring to here is the future destruction that will occur because of the invasion of Babylon. Eventually, it hasn't happened yet, the Babylonians come in and they capture the people of Judah and they destroy everything. They take their wives unto themselves, the wives of the people unto themselves, and they destroy all of their crops. Everything they worked hard for, they are destroyed. All because the people wanted nothing to do with God. They put their hope and they put their trust into something that was not lasting. In verses 14 through 17, as we enter into this next section here, Jeremiah describes the reality of the Babylonian invasion. There will come a point when the warnings will cease and the reality of the Babylonian invasion will take place. And out of desperation, the people are going to cry for peace, but it will be too late. Look at the descriptive scene painted in verses 14 through 17. Let's read it. It says, Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. Gall being that poisonous plant that if you drink it, you obviously would get sick and in some cases die. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health and behold trouble, the snorting of the horses was heard from Dan. This is in reference to the fact that Dan being a tribe up in the north, that's actually where the Babylonians came. If they came and they invaded from the north through the tribe of Dan. He's saying, you hear the snorting of the horses coming. They are breathing down your necks. And then he continues on, the whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they come and they have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell in. For behold, I will send serpents, in other words, uh, uh, those that are Babylonians, uh, cockroaches among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. The serpent to the Jews was an extremely fearsome reptile. They wanted nothing to do with snakes. Obviously, it, you know, going back to Satan and the serpent with Satan, they had a tremendous dread and fear of snakes. And what Jeremiah is doing, and God's doing through Jeremiah, is he's comparing this Babylonian army as being so fierce and so destructive as being serpents. And the Bible says that they are going to be so fierce that no one can tame them. There is literally nothing you can do about their destruction. They're going to take everything away from you. And guess what? They still didn't listen. The people of Judah still did not listen. As we move into the next section here, we see that Jeremiah is overcome once again by the sin of his people. Have you ever gotten to a point where you're ministering to somebody over and over again, or maybe you're in your workplace and I talked to somebody recently where they are dealing with the sin that's around them. And it's not that you think you're better. 
because you know you're not sinning like they are but sin becomes such a heavy weight upon you that you are more or less moved to tears and you're just burdened you just ask god god just take me away that's how jeremiah was feeling right now as you jump down to verse 18 you see jeremiah beginning to cry out we're not going to take the time to go through this entire section but we're going to highlight just a few verses in verse 19, what Jeremiah does is he points to the cry of the exiled Jews that will come after they've been taken captive in Babylon. In the midst of their cries, Jeremiah says, they wonder why God would let this happen to his land and to his people. Look down in verse 19. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not, uh, is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strong vanities? It continues on in verses 21 through 22. So broken over his people, and he longed for God to apply healing to his people. He says in these two verses, 21 and 22, For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken a hold on me. Is there no balm of Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Jeremiah is broken over his people. And as you see in verse uh, chapter 9, beginning in verses 1 and 2 there, what you see is the raw emotions come out of Jeremiah, which actually earns him the title, the weeping prophet. And if you've heard of Jeremiah before, you've probably heard to, of him referred to as the weeping prophet. In verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they shall all be adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. What he's pleading before God there in that first verse is that God would just give him a relief of the amount of tears that he is expressing or shedding for his people. And then as you get into verse 2, he says, if I could just have, and he uses the phrase in the King James, it may say something different in your version there. He says, I, oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men. What he's referring to here are these little tiny square buildings that were built often in the wilderness as just basically a place for people that were traveling through the wilderness just to rest. There'd be these little buildings along the way that as people were traveling, they could go in there at nighttime and they could rest. These buildings would have been smelly. They would have been nasty. They would have been dirty. They would have been lonely. But he is craving and begging that God would send him there because that's how, that's how much he did not want to be around the sins of his people. The sins became such a burden to him. He says they're all nothing but a bunch of adulterers and treacherous men. As we talked about last week, one of the things that they would do in worshiping this... Um, this god Ishtar and Aphrodite, you know, all those, you know, that, that goddess of, of um, um, procreation there or, or reproduction, there we go, fertility. One of the ways that they would worship them is they would go into the temple and they would visit the temple prostitutes and they would sleep with the temple prostitutes. And, and that's their way of expressing their worship. The Jews would do this. Those that were, those that were God's chosen people. That is the type of stuff that Jeremiah is living in the midst of. And he's begging that God would just take him away. As we come to verses 9 through 16, we see God's response to Jeremiah's mourning. In essence, God says, Jeremiah, what am I supposed to do with such a group of sinful and unrepentant people? 
God says that because of their sin, they must receive divine judgment. God says in verse 15, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood and give them a water of gall to drink. What the Lord was doing in verse 15 is he was painting a picture of the awful suffering of the judgment that would be coming to his people. He uses the term wormwood. You guys, do you guys know what wormwood is? Wormwood is this leaf, this leaf that people would use, and I think you can actually use it for medicinal purposes. But then again, you can use marijuana for medicinal purposes. I don't know how beneficial it would be. But you can eat wormwood, and it's extremely bitter. It does not taste good. It's extremely bitter. And then as I mentioned earlier, the gall that he's referring to here, gall is a poisonous plant. And so he's comparing this uh, judgment that they're going to receive as if you were eating bitter leaves and drinking poison. As we enter the final section of chapter 9, though, what we see is this need for brokenness over the sins of the people. Their captivity will cause them to cry out in pain and anguish. God commands them to mourn over their sin as mourning shows a sign of true brokenness and repentance. If you look down to verse 17, all the way down to verse 26, you're going to see that the people cry out for their judgment. In verses 17 to 22, though, before we look at the whole entire thing here, what we see is that God hires professional mourners to lament over his people. And this section is really a poem about death. Death is personified as an intruder who sneaks through a window at night. Jeremiah was showing that through the future invasion of the Babylonian army, death would invade the cities. In the midst of their attack, the Babylonians would rob the families of their children. Death and sadness would be spread all throughout the land, and the hired mourners give us a picture of the severe massacre and the destruction that the people would experience. So let's pick it up. Verse 17, we'll read down to verse 22. It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider you, and call for the mourning women, that they may come, and send forth, or send for cunning women, that they may come. And let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with waters. For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land because our dwellings have cast us out. Yet the word of the Lord, yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth and teach your daughters wailing and every one of her neighbor's lamentation. In other words, he's saying, teach them to repent and to be broken over their sin. And verse 21, for death is come up into our windows and is entered into our palaces to cut off the children from without and the young men from the streets. Speak, thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field and as the handful after the harvest men and none shall gather them. Again, through a poetical form, he's painting the picture of the destruction of the Babylonians. The Babylonians will come in and they will destroy. They will take their robust men for themselves, their sons for themselves, so that they can no longer be a part of the rest of the, the group there. And they will completely destroy their families, rip them upside down. That is what they are going to experience through all of this. But as we approach verses 23 and 24, the prophet Jeremiah gives the people a foundational truth. And this is going to be the two verses that we're going to focus on here. And it's a foundational truth when it comes to the pursuit of glory. Remember the entire reason why Judah found themselves in this situation? Because they failed to crave God. They failed to crave God in a way that we were designed to crave Him. 
they wanted the power of God. They liked the idea of God, but they did not want a relationship with God. And I've been pretty honest and open with you over the past several weeks regarding just how God's been shaping me in my approach to ministry. And as you mentioned a few weeks ago, I struggled personally with the first couple of years of ministry here at the chapel. But as God continues to grow me and break my heart, I still have a long way to go, but mend it back together to match up what He desires. I am grateful for what He has done so far. But the more I thought about it, I mentioned to you that it came to a point in which I mentioned to you that I, I no longer cared. And it, again, it wasn't about the ministry. I didn't know how to express to you in my heart what changed in my thinking. But as I was reading through this and I was studying it, believe it or not, there was a preacher that wrote this book that went through the same thing. And so he gave a quote, and I thought it perfectly expressed what happened in my heart, this shift. And he says it this way. Him, talking about himself, I was seeking God for his presence, his power, and his blessing. But I was not seeking him just to know him. I wanted his blessings. I did not want him. And as the author puts it, he says, life is intimacy with God. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it states, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What the people were doing, and, 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 and I, I obviously wasn't unsaved. I, I, just, I was craving the benefits that God would offer rather than God himself. And there was a big struggle there. But the people of Judah were pursuing everything that had to do with the glory of man. They did not want the glory of God. They did not pursue the glory of God. And so what Jeremiah does in these two verses is he gives us a comparison. And really the first thing that he mentions in verse 23 is this, this really this empty pursuit of the glory of God. Look down to verse 23. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. There are a few things that are necessary for us to mention in this passage here. First off, God says that the possession of wisdom, strength, and riches is not wrong. It's when man boasts on those things that it becomes sin. And we do this so often, even without thinking. Those of us that have been in church for quite some time, which is the majority of us in here, are perfect at manufacturing a subtle way to brag. For example, we don't want to brag about being smart, because we understand that would be inappropriate, but we take a smug satisfaction in thinking that we are smarter than other people, even though we really aren't. What makes this even worse is that because we are Christians, we don't publicly brag about it because we know that that would be unspiritual. So we keep our thoughts of superiority to ourselves. And as one author puts it, this is a hypocrite's win-win scenario. They get points for being better than someone else and bonus points for having the humility not to bring it up. And this is what we do all the time in our Christian circles, right? In our minds, we say, yeah, you know what? I don't struggle like they do. We can kind of have this Christian thing figured out. But we don't bring it up to other people. We, you know, maybe say something in the form of a prayer request. Pray for so-and-so. Uh, the Lord is just, he's really far from the Lord right now. And it's our subtle way of, of gossiping, but yet we're doing it behind the cloak of prayer. And us as Christians, we can pursue this and boast in our own strength, in our own wisdom, and in our own power 
but we do it in a subtle way to make it look like we're not really doing that. And so there's this game that we think we're playing with God when in reality God sees our heart. And so as I gave you the example earlier, if I go home and I was thirsty and I was hungry and I was craving for that and I pull out that refrigerator, that Dr. Pepper, I fill up the cup and I drink it, I'm satisfied for just a moment, but a few moments later, I'm even more thirsty than I was before. When we pursue our own glory and the glory of man and then the strength of man and we pursue all these things that are man-related, even though we do it behind the cloak of God, we're satisfied for just a few moments but then we are never truly satisfied spiritually as a whole because we want more of it. Because at no point does it ever stop. We want more strength. We want more riches. We want more honor. We want more glory. We want a bigger church in my instance. We want more people to come. Having a bigger church and desiring for God's will to be done is not wrong, but when we're doing it for the pursuit of our own glory, that's when it becomes an issue. And so Jeremiah points out the reason why the people are where they are right now is because they pursued their own glory. He flips that around in verse 24, and he gives us the satisfying pursuit of glory. He says, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, saith the Lord. There's three things here that... Jeremiah tells us that we must focus on when it comes to the Lord. First off, we glory in the fact that God is faithfully loving. Because of a loving kindness, He's faithfully loving. He will continue to love us and love us and love us and love us and pursue us and pursue us and pursue us. But that doesn't last forever. Because not only is God faithfully loving, and He accepts us as we are through grace, He also is just. He's also just. He cannot tolerate sin, and he must therefore judge it according to his righteousness. And so when we pursue God, we pursue the fact that he is loving and he is kind, but we don't oppose upon that because God is also just and he's also righteous. And so he cannot accept our sin, which is why people that do not trust in Christ as their Savior go to hell. Because that is God being the just judge that he is. And so it's when we quit pursuing the glory of man and we begin to pursue the glory of God is when we are going to be truly satisfied. And so everything in our life must be for the pursuit of the glory of God, not for the pursuit of the glory of ourselves. And so my prayer is that our prayer would be like Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. But unfortunately, the people of Judah did not boast in God. They had to be punished along with the other pagans. And look at the reality that Jeremiah gives us in the final two verses of this chapter. He says, Behold, the days come saith the Lord, that I will punish all of them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. In other words, will I punish all of my chosen people, all of my own people, with those that are pagan? Those that are circumcised from the outside, I will punish them along with those that are pagan on the outside continues on in verse 26, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Amnon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. They may have tried to play the game with God 
they may have tried to work, and they did, they tried to worship by doing the actions of going into the temple and worshiping God, but God sees the heart. Can't fool God. And it got to a point where God's patience with the children of Judah had run out. And now they were about to experience the divine judgment that they so rightly deserved. May our hearts, may my, my prayer is that our hearts would pursue the glory of God. We praise the Lord that as Christians we don't experience the divine judgment of hell. Praise the Lord for that. But there are times in our life that we can pursue the glory of man, our own glory, rather than the glory of God. And whenever we get our eyes off of that, off of God onto ourselves or onto the world, so to speak, we always end up failing. We always end up falling. We have to remain humble and yielded and committed to the glory and the pursuit of the glory of God.